0: Good morning, Lakeview Church. So excited to be able to share God's word with you, and we're going to jump right in to James chapter 4. We're in this series that we're calling Relationship Rules, uh, taken right out of the book of James. And uh, we've been talking about the fact for quite a while now that we are an everyday church for everyday people where we strive to follow Jesus, live generously, and make a difference every single day. And the reality is, is that while those are things that we want to see in each of our individual lives, we pursue those things together as a body of believers. So we come together as a church, as a community, as a body of people, and we pursue the life that God has called us to live together. That's what the church is for, and that's what the church is about. Which means if we want to reach our potential, if we want to become everything that God wants us to be, we must have a strong relational network inside of the church. We can't just be a collection of individuals that aren't connected deeply to each other. We have to have these deep relationships. And so we've been talking about these relationship rules. And we started the series by talking about the fact that we can't play favorites. Right? Every single person is created in the image of God. And as such, they're worthy of dignity and honor and respect. And so we can't ever say that one person has more value than another person for any reason. Because every person is created in the image of God. We don't play Favorites. Last week, we talked about the fact that we don't let our tongues run wild. We, we simply can't do that. We, we have to control our tongues because if we control our tongues, it actually validates our religion. If we, if we claim to follow God, but we don't control our tongues, then our religion is Worthless. And we talked about the fact last week that we're called to control our tongues, but we can't. It's impossible to tame the tongue, James says. So what are we left to do? We have to allow God to transform the source deep inside of us. We need God's grace and his power and his truth to do its work in us so that he can make us at the core of our being good and holy and so that our words reflect that as they come out of our mouths. This morning, I want to talk to you about the fact that we shouldn't be friends with the world. Now, when you hear this rule, you might be tempted to think that automatically what what James is telling us is that you should cut off all relationships with anybody who's not in the church, that we should kind of just separate ourselves completely from people in the world. But that's not what James is talking about in this passage of Scripture. Because the fact of the matter is, as God's people, we're called to have missional influence in the world. And that requires us to have relationships with people who are outside of the church. And so we're called to engage in relationships with people who are far from God, to love them and to serve them and to do our part to influence them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not a call to cut off friendships with people in the world. You might be tempted to think that it's a call for the church to kind of come out from the world and be completely separate, to kind of cloister ourselves away like inside of a monastery, right? Where we just basically shut ourselves off from the world. But that's not what James is talking about because the church is called to have a redemptive presence. Remember Jesus in John chapter 15 and John chapter 17, he prayed for his disciples, not just the disciples we read about in the New Testament, but all who would follow him. In generations to come, he prayed that we would be in the world but not of the world, that we would remain engaged in the life of this world as a redemptive presence without becoming like the world. So we're not called to cut off friendships and we're not called to withdraw from the world. You might be tempted to think that this rule is about kind of our attitude towards the world, that we're called to somehow judge the world or condemn the world, but that's not true either because Jesus came because God loved the world. And he didn't send his son into the world to judge the world or to condemn the world. He sent Jesus into the world so that the world could be saved. And because we are God's people, we are called to have the same heart for the world that God has for the world. God loves the world and we should love the world. So this isn't about cutting off friendships and it's not about withdrawing from the world and it's not about hating the world or condemning the world. So what is it about, right? If we're not supposed to be friends with the world and it doesn't mean any of those things, what does it mean? Well, the core issue of what James is talking about in this passage is lordship. Who is in the driver's seat of your life? He's talking about lordship. Who is controlling, driving, directing your life? What, what is it that's giving you kind of the impetus for who you are and what you do in the world? Are you following God as your Lord or are you still trying to follow the ways of the world? This is really the core issue that James is getting at in James chapter four. Who is in the driver's seat of your life? And we're gonna look at this text together over these next few minutes and kind of unpack it and see the the kind of two options that we have to either make God the Lord of our lives or to, to allow the world to continue to, to be Lord of our life, to guide us and direct us in what we do and in how we live. And we're gonna look right at James chapter four to do that. And I just wanna, before we dig into this passage, just to remind you, James is not writing to people outside of the church. He's writing to people who already know who Jesus is. They've believed in Jesus. They've been saved by Jesus. And as such, they are now part of the body of Christ. They're part of the church. And yet what James has found inside of the church in the first century is that there are a group of people who have claimed the name of Christ, but they have not yet given God full control of their lives. In some ways, they are trying to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world. Now, this is not a problem we have in the 21st century. We have mastered this, and we don't ever deal with these kind of issues anymore. Just kidding. This actually has been an issue since the church was formed. James writes about it in the first century, and we are still dealing with it in the 21st century. People who come to faith in Jesus, who believe in Jesus, believe he is the son of God, who died on the cross and was raised again on the third day. People who ask Jesus to forgive their sins and allow them to have eternal life with him forever after they die. People who put their trust in him for salvation, and yet... With one foot in the church, they try to keep one foot in the world and play both sides of the fence. And James writes chapter 4 in this letter to these Christ followers to say, you can't do that. That's not what God wants for his church. He's not looking for people who believe in Jesus and live like the world. He's looking for people who believe in Jesus and are becoming like Jesus, so that as they go out in the world, they actually live as Christ would live in the middle of the world that we find ourselves in. This is what James is writing about in James chapter 4. There are really two choices that every Christ follower has. To be a Christian And live like the world or to be a Christian and make God the Lord of your life so that every part of who you are and everything that you do and say looks like him. These are the decisions we have to make. Now James in this passage talks to the church to help them see what a life looks like when you claim the name of Christ but keep the world as your Lord. You, you claim the name of Christ, but you keep living like the world. What does that look like? Well, the first thing that we see in this passage is that your, your mindset, your your entire paradigm of life is really controlled by your evil desires. It's controlled by your evil desires. What James is saying is that there is the most inner part of your being That is still controlled by the ways of the world, by the philosophies of the world, by the things that are opposed to God and his plan for your life. And James says, even though you've come to faith in Christ, even though you've believed in Jesus, even though you're saved and you're on your way to heaven, the reality is you're still living like the world because at the deepest part of who you are, the evil desires that are inside of you are still controlling your life. Look at what he says in James chapter 4, verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires that are at war within you? James is saying, listen, I know that there are things that are showing up inside of the body of Christ where you're actually fighting against each other. You're quarreling against each other. And that's not something that comes from God. God doesn't create that inside of his church. That's something that comes from the evil desires that are inside of you that you have not yet surrendered fully to the Lord. There's still a part of your life that that you have not given over to him at the deepest part of who you are. And so it's still waging war inside of you. And you find yourself from time to time continuing to live like the world. Now, Paul talks about this same struggle in Romans chapter seven. And we've talked about this passage last fall. If you were around, we we studied the book of Romans. And as we read Romans chapter seven, what we find is Paul saying, listen, there are lots of things I wanna do and I can't find the strength to do those things. And there are other things that I know I should never do. And yet I keep doing them over and over and over again. And what is Paul talking about? He's talking about this war at the deepest part of his life, those evil desires that are deep inside of him. Paul calls it in the book of Romans the sinful nature. It is the the core of who we are that is bent to go away from God. It is bent to never desire the things of God. And Paul says, I've got that in my life. I want to do what God has for me to do, but I can't find the strength to do those things. And there are things that no matter how many times I tell myself, you got to stay away from that. Don't do that. Don't engage in that. I keep going back and doing that thing again. And Paul actually says in Romans chapter seven, verse 24, oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will Free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. Listen, some of you have to come to this point in your journey. Because you've, you've decided to follow Jesus. you put your faith in him. You, you've believed in him. He's saved you from your sins. He's forgiven you. And you're on your way to heaven. Praise be to God. But as you have sought to live out the Christian life, you keep finding yourself not having the capacity to do the things that God wants you to do. And you find yourself returning over and over and over again to the very things that you know God doesn't want from you. And some of you have just believed this must be the way the Christian life is, a constant struggle against these evil desires that are deep inside of me. And I just want to let you know, James doesn't believe that, and I don't either. I believe that God wants to set us free. I believe that James is writing this portion of his letter to call people to a different and better place in God's plan for their lives. To say to them, I know that you're followers of Jesus, but you live like the world, but you don't have to. Right? It all starts with these evil desires, but there's victory for that. You can can actually be set free from that. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So we got to come back and keep looking at James chapter 4. Because what happens is James identifies these evil desires at the innermost part of their lives. And then he goes on to talk about the fact that a life that is still controlled by these evil desires, it has motives and attitudes that are driven by selfishness. You see, we have these evil desires that are waging war at the core of our being, and and then we have these motives and these attitudes that cause us to be selfish. Look at the passage, verses two and three. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and you kill to get it. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You see what James is saying here? There are these evil desires that are controlling you, and they are shaping your motives and your attitudes in the way that you think about people in the body of Christ, you're viewing the people who are part of the fellowship, the people that you're supposed to belong to a community of faith with, the people that you're supposed to be walking the journey of faith with. You're looking at these people not as your brothers and sisters on the journey with you. You're looking at them as competitors. You're looking at them as people who you see what they have and you covet it, you want it. You're seeing it as kind of a one-upmanship with them. They got something I want. I'm gonna get that, and I'm gonna get one better than them because I wanna be above them. Or you're looking at them as enemies, people that you fight against, right? They're they're people that you fight and you quarrel with because you want what they've got. Or you see them as objects, not as people made in the image of God. You see them as things that you can use to get what you want or things that you can take advantage of so that you can have what they have so that you can have it for your own pleasure. You see, when, when you allow yourself to be controlled by evil desires, it shapes your motives and your attitudes in the way you view other people and you become selfish because at the core of what sin is, it is selfishness in our lives. And listen, selfishness is not godly. If you find yourself being selfish, you need to check yourself in that moment because in that moment you are not living the life that God wants you to live. This is not what we are called to as Christ followers, right? If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you must be the servant of all. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that when we come into the body of Christ, our attitude, our mindset, our perspective on life should be the very same as Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but he made himself nothing. And in that same context in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this is how you ought to treat one another. When you come to the body of Christ, you ought to consider others as better than yourselves. When you come to the body of Christ, you ought to actually look out for the interests of others more than you look out for your own interests. Selfishness is not godly. But when we allow ourselves to be controlled by the evil desires that are deep inside of us, our motives and our attitudes look just like the world, full of selfish desires and longings. And then James goes on to say, when you allow the inner desires to be evil and your motives and attitudes to be selfish, well, that leads to worldly methods, right? Worldly actions and behaviors. You actually live like the world. You you actually allow yourself to look like the world, which is why sometimes people look at the church and they say, oh, those people are just a bunch of hypocrites. And what do they mean? They mean they, they claim one thing, but they live another way. When they go to church, it's like they put a mask on and they're play acting, trying to pretend to be Christians, but in reality, they're just like the world. This is is the problem in today's world is that we as a church are trying to influence the world and the world is saying, to what end? Why would we come to the church when we can just live like the world in the world? Why would we come to the church so we can live like the world? This is the problem today. We have a church, particularly in North America, that is washing out the lines of distinction between what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ and what it means to live life in the world. Because we have a lot of people who are trying to play both sides of the fence to be people who are saved by Jesus, but who still live like the world. And it is damaging our witness because people look at the church and they come inside the church and we're fighting and quarreling with each other. We're tearing each other down. We're one-upping each other and competing with one another instead of saying, no, no, we are the body of Christ. One church, one team, one community of faith, all moving together, of course, at different places in our journeys. Different personalities and different likes and preferences and all of those things are true, but we are one body and they know that we are Christians by the love that we have for each other and by the character that we display when we leave these walls because we are truly God's people. Not half of the time, not some of the time, but all of the time. this is what James is getting at, that our inner person if we are controlled by evil desires it shapes our motives and our and our attitudes and that shows up in our actions and our behaviors and we end up looking just like the world which brings us to the main point of this message which is that we should not be friends with the world but we should make god the lord of our lives See, in James chapter four, verse four, James says this, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you wanna be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Let me translate what James is saying. James is saying when you come to faith in Jesus, you are making a commitment to live all of your life for Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus and keep living like the world, you're running out on God. You're cheating on Him. You're an adulterer. You made a commitment, you made a covenant to God to say, God, my life does not belong to me anymore. It belongs to you. You purchased my life for a price and I'm giving myself fully to you. And then when you go out and you keep living like the world, you're cheating on God. You are breaking the covenant that you have made with him. And that's why we're talking about this message today. This was another one Pastor Jared should have preached. This was a hard one. He knew that I was going to ask him, so he went away on vacation. This is a hard message, not a fun one for us to hear, right? I'm not having fun preaching it. And you probably aren't having fun hearing it, but it's a message we need to hear because we've got to be the people that God has called us to be, or we ought to just shut the doors and go home. Because I don't really see the point if we're not gonna be who God wants us to be. James says, when you you try to follow Jesus and live like the world, when you try to play both sides of the fence, you are dividing your loyalties, you're being unfaithful to God. And God has put a spirit inside of you that's passionate for this relationship. And so what you're doing when you run around and try to live like the world while you're trying to follow Jesus is you are quenching the spirit of God in your life. Because God wants nothing more than for you to be completely sold out to him. To make him the Lord of your life. This is what we are called to be as God's people. And so what does it look like when we make God the Lord of our lives? I want to just contrast what James has said by going back to Romans 7 and 8 and kind of walking us through a quick contrast. You see, when we are friends with the world, we are controlled by the evil desires that are waging war inside of us. But when we decide to make God the Lord of our lives, God begins to do a work deep inside of us that sets us free from that war inside of us. We read Romans chapter 7, and perhaps many of us in the room can say, I agree with Paul. There are things I want to do, and I can't seem to find the strength to do them. And there are other things I know I should stay away from, but I keep going back to them. And we can, we can give an amen to Paul when he says, what a miserable person I am. Except Paul wasn't sharing those words as a way to say, isn't it great to follow Jesus and be miserable? That's not what Paul's saying in this passage. You gotta keep reading in Romans chapter seven because when you do, what you find is that Paul, right after he says, what a miserable person I am, who could ever rescue me from this situation that I found myself in? Paul says, thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ. You wanna know how you do the things you're supposed to do and how you stay away from the things you're not supposed to do? You make Jesus Christ Lord of your life and you let him have complete control. It is possible. God's grace is so powerful and his transformation so full that even at the innermost parts of our being, God can do a work of transformation inside of us that actually changes the desires and the inclinations and the bent of our lives, not to be away from him, but to be towards him. This is the call to sanctification and holiness. This is why I am a Wesleyan. Because we don't actually believe that God just looks at us and says, Now there, you're holy because I see you as holy. We believe that the grace of God can actually go into a person's life and radically change them at the very fiber of their being to make them holy. God can turn water into wine, which, by the way, is a miracle. There's no way to turn water into wine because it's changing the substance of that thing to be something completely different. God has power to do that even in your life. And Paul talks about it as we get to Romans chapter eight. He says, now because of Christ, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. You can allow your life to be controlled by the evil desires or you can surrender yourself, consecrate yourself fully to God and God can actually change you at the core of your being to make you good and holy like him. And by the way, this is the will of God for your life. That's what scripture tells us. This is what God wants for you. And he doesn't want something for you that he hasn't made possible. God can change you so that you are controlled by God's spirit. And we read this as we continue to read in Romans chapter 8. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead we follow the Spirit of God. This is what we're called to, not to be controlled by our evil desires, but to let God do a work of grace and transformation in us so that we are controlled by God's spirit. What does this mean for our motives and our attitudes? It means that instead of being selfish, we are driven now by selfless love. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says when the Holy Spirit is poured out in our lives, God actually puts his love inside of us. And we know this, right? Because when we read Galatians 5.22, we find that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. Which, by the way, on Friday, we laid to rest a great man of faith, Dr. Wayne E. Caldwell, Uni Ricky's dad. And what a great man of faith. I mean, just the funeral service just testified to what a life controlled by God's Spirit looks like. Selfless, loving, caring, devoted, faithful, true. And Dr. Caldwell really studied this. In fact, he wrote a book called The Fruit and Gifts of the Holy Spirit. And don't ever get that title wrong. Because I did when I was a college student. I got seated next to Dr. Caldwell at a luncheon at Indiana Wesleyan. And as I was seated next to him, I did my homework. I read his book, The Fruit and Gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I was prepared for this conversation. I knew I was going to be seated next to him. I wanted to have an intelligent conversation with him about something he was passionate with. And the very first thing I said as a college student was, Dr. Caldwell, I read your book on the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of my sentence, he didn't even wait. With grace and compassion and care, he just said, correction, son. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. You don't just get one of them, you get all of them. The Spirit produces all of those things in your life. And in that moment, he taught me a valuable, important lesson about what the Spirit does in our lives. The Spirit changes us to actually make us look like Jesus. We need God to do something inside of us so that we're not controlled by our evil desires. And when that changes, you know what else happens? We begin to have different motives and different attitudes. We we see the world differently. We see people differently. And instead of being driven by selfishness, we are now driven by selfless love. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. He says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. When you let the Spirit of God do his work inside of you, it changes the way you encounter the world. And we need that. We need that inside of the church and we need that out in the world. And then the last thing I'll say is that when we have this inner part of our lives controlled by the Spirit and we are now driven by selfless love, guess what? It changes our methods. Instead of looking like the world and talking like the world and acting like the world, we actually engage ourselves in holy living so that when people see our lives, they see Jesus. Dallas Willard talks about spiritual formation and and, and the whole journey of transformation in, in God's kingdom to being the fact that we grow to such a place that we go out and we live our lives. And it's as if Jesus is living our lives in the world. That's how much we need to become like him. And some of you think that's impossible, You might be thinking it's impossible for you, and you might be thinking about the people you're sitting nearby to and say it's definitely impossible for them. Here's what I want you to know. With God, all things are possible. inside of the church god wants to transform us not just not just in some inner place that no one can see but he wants to actually transform us in the way we live our lives and when we let god have the most inner most part of our being and do his transforming work there and let that shape our motives and our attitudes it Automatically overflows into our actions and our words and our behaviors and it changes our lives and the way that we engage inside of the church and out in the world. and God is glorified. This is what we're called to as god's people, holy living. Now there is a danger when we talk about this and the danger is that we will turn into legalists. Legalists are people who don't really focus on the evil desires and the motives and the attitudes. They just focus on the actions and the behaviors. I want to just encourage you, let's not start out here. Let's let God have the innermost part of our being so that we are transformed from the inside out because if we are transformed from the inside out then the way that we live our lives is a true reflection of who we are and we're not just pretending to be christians by forcing our actions to look a certain way while there are still evil desires controlling us on the inside we got to let god have our entire being from the inside out they say how would we do this well James tells us in James chapter four, and I'm gonna conclude with this. I'm gonna ask the band to come back because we're gonna sing together in just a moment. This is what James says in verse seven. So humble yourselves before God. Let's start right there. You will never become who God wants you to be if you are proud Proud people say, I've already come so far. I mean, I'm not who I used to be. I'm I'm so much better now. And we ignore that there might still be things that God wants to do in our lives because of our spiritual pride. Or we look around inside of the church and we say, well, I'm not as bad as that person. That's pride. And here's what we know about proud people. God opposes them. You want to you figure out a way for God not to help you become who he wants you to be? Just be proud. God will oppose you. He will stand against you if you're proud. But when we humble ourselves, when we say, God, I am not everything that you want me to be yet, And I'm going to submit myself to your leadership and your lordship. And I put myself in your control. I belong to you. You do whatever you want to do with me. When we humble ourselves in that way, guess what God does to humble people? He gives grace. And grace is exactly what we need. So humble yourselves. Secondly, resist the devil. That's what James says in verse 7. He says, that we should humble ourselves before God, we should resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I just say this, because it's important for you to know that you have an enemy. You are not pursuing a holy life unimpeded. You have an enemy, and his mission is clear. Jesus tells us in John 10 that the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And we are told later in the New Testament that the evil one goes back and forth through this earth looking for someone that he can devour. You have an enemy, and I just want to call out in you that sense of you are in a fight, and you better fight. Don't let the enemy run wild in your life. Stand against the enemy. With God's help, humble yourself and resist the devil and he will flee from you. And then the last thing that I would say is you have to pursue God. Humble yourself before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Listen, God wants to make us into holy people. But we got to pursue him. We got to pursue him. In fact, I would say this to you. Pursuing holiness is never about pursuing holiness. It's only ever about pursuing more of God. Because God is holy. And what we want is not just something that God can do for us. We want God. We want to live in union with him. And so this morning, I've asked the team to lead us. They're going to lead us in actually a couple of songs here. The first song is a song that will be familiar to many of you. It's a song of consecration, it's a hymn of the church. And I want you to sing this song only if it is your prayer. So if you are here this morning and you, hear, you see the words of this song as they appear on the screen and you think, I'm not there yet, just don't sing. But, but if, if it is your prayer, God, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Sing that from the bottom of your soul and make it your prayer this morning. And then at the conclusion of that song, we're going to sing another song that just is a celebration of what God does with a consecrated life. So we're gonna spend some time pursuing God in song this morning. And I wanna invite you to stand with me. This should go without saying here at Lakeview Church, but I'm gonna say it anyway. The altars are always open. So if you find yourself as we're singing these songs, just wanting to come to this altar, to kneel, to pray, to stand around the front and just physically put yourself in a place to say, God, I'm pursuing you. I would invite you to come. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to sing. God, we are here this morning. We have been in your word. And we are here now in your presence just saying, God, we want more of you. So would you help us in these moments to humble ourselves, to resist the devil, and to pursue you? God, let these songs be songs of prayer from our souls directly to you. And may you do your work even as we sing. We pray these things in Jesus' name.